Book number one, Genesis, a book of beginnings and a book of firsts. I think we're all fascinated by having firsts in life. We celebrate a lot of different firsts, and rightly so, because a lot of those come with times in our life that are very significant. All of you had your first birthday celebration. You don't remember it, but everybody gathered around you and see if you put your face into the cake, take pictures. You've all seen your, your pictures of your first birthday, and it is a big deal. Sometimes we come across something in life that is a first, and we don't realize that it's a first until later on. I remember when I first met Christy was in math class junior year. And does anybody like math? If you do, it's not true. But, you know, you walk into math class, it's just another day of school, I meet this girl and I don't realize that in less than a year's time, the trajectory of my life will radically change for the better. Or sometimes we do know that it's a big deal. I have pictures of all my kids with their first car, right? And so we have all these times in life where we see the foundation of these things that have happened. I actually came across an article by Reader's Digest that went through some of history's significant first, and, they, and I only pulled one of them for the sake of time, but they listed the first phone call. Does anybody know who made the first phone call? Nobody? Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the phone, March 10th, 1876, you know what he said? Mr. Watson, come here. He was actually in the next room. And they made the joke, like, well, if they realized that was such a significant first, then maybe he would have thought something else to say. But as you guys kind of go through your keepsakes at home and you think about the firsts, your uh, the things that uh, stand out to you of, of significance. As we come to Genesis, there's a reason that the Holy Spirit has put this book at the beginning of our Bible. And we're not surprised that this, these are all the firsts because this is the beginning of human history. So I want to kind of give you a, a sneak peek of that before we get into the book proper. Look at Genesis chapter 4 and read with me here or follow along verses 21 and 22. It says his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. So does anybody here play a stringed instrument? Anyone? A couple of you? Has anybody played a wind instrument? So this is the beginning of stringed and wind instruments here in Genesis chapter 4. And then look at verse 22. It says, as for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. So here we have the beginning of metallurgy. It actually makes you wonder what else we might have missed reading through the book of Genesis. The inexhaustible truths that can be found in the Bible. But let's start here. If you kind of take your note sheet, we're going to start with the stats of the book to kind of get you familiar with the, the significance of this particular work of, of the Spirit. Written by Moses, it was given to Moses somewhere between the years 1445 and 1405 BC. Don't be surprised, uh, when you get to ancient literature, it's actually very difficult for all ancient literature to pin down an exact date, but we're very confident as we look at snapshots of history of the things that this book records that's about the time frame that, that Moses wrote this book. We know it by its name, Genesis. So remember last Sunday, we reminded ourselves that the Old Testament was primarily written in what language? Hebrew. Thank you. So it was primarily written in Hebrew, but has anybody ever heard of the Septuagint? So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is actually very helpful for us in understanding some of the passages because it gives us a different interpretation of how the words are used. The, the title Genesis comes from the Septuagint. If you look in the Hebrew Bible, it titles the book in the beginning. So it takes that first phrase in Hebrew at the beginning of 
chapter 1, verse 1 are chapters and verses. They didn't have those in the original. But it's the Hebrew phrase, Bereshit, which means in the beginning. So that's where we get the official title. Genesis is, does anybody know how many chapters without looking? 50, good. 50 chapters long, contains about 1,500 verses, and as word count goes, it's 32,000 words in length. So if you go by word count, Genesis is the second longest book in the Bible. Does anybody want to guess what the first longest book, word count, in the Bible is? Yes? No. 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 Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the longest. First, second is Genesis, and then Psalms is third. So all the content in the book of Genesis is actually longer than, than Psalms. And this particular book is quoted or alluded to in 22 of the New Testament books. So this book is everywhere in the New Testament. There's about 103 quotations or allusions. But more than just the numbers is actually the significance of this book. I want to read for you guys a, a little bit of a lengthier quote from Ken Ham. He is with Answers in Genesis. Those of you who have volunteered with VBS, that's the curriculum that we use to uh, teach the kids the importance of creation. Some of you may have utilized their website. to. Uh, they, if you have not, I encourage you to kind of use that in your, in your study times. They'll address all of the scientific issues and give answers to the secular questions about the Bible. They have a really great resource on their website for a lot of the different issues in the scientific realm. But I want you to listen to this quotation from Ken Ham when he talks about Genesis chapter 1 through 11 in particular. He says this, one of the points I include in some of my presentations is that if a Christian wants to deal with any issue, he says, yes, any issue in life, you must start with the foundational information that's revealed in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It is the foundation for everything. Think about it, he says. All of our thinking has a foundation, and ultimately there are only two foundations, God's word or man's word. But we need to go further. Not only is God's word the foundation for all thinking as Christians, but Genesis chapters 1 through 11 is the foundation for the rest of the Bible, for our Christian worldview, for our doctrine, and in fact, for everything. He says, take any topic, and you'll find its roots here. For example, abortion. We need to start with Genesis as the information found there. God created life, and humans were made in God's image. Humans are not to murder other humans. This is the foundation to begin with when you answer the issue of abortion. Or take the issue of the fossil record. Genesis chapter 6 through 9, we're told about the catastrophic global flood. This would have caused massive fossil formations all over the earth. Take the issue of marriage. God created the first marriage when he created the first man and woman, as related in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 2.24, we read about the creation of marriage between one man and one woman. And then his last example is the age of the earth. We start at the beginning of history in Genesis 1.1 where God began to create the mass, excuse me, the space, mass, time, universe. He tells us he created all things in six days. The first man, Adam, was made on day six. We are told when Adam had a son, and when that son had a son, and so on. And so the Bible gives us the history so that we can add up the dates and determine the universe and when life came into existence. So if you were to take just those four topics, abortion, the fossil record, marriage, gender, and the age of the earth, if you were to settle those out of the book of Genesis, think how much that would answer all of the criticism that comes to the Bible in just those four topics. He says Genesis 1 through 11 is the foundation for everything. So let's get our, let's get our arms around this structure of this book. On your note sheet, I gave you... A, an outline of the book, and I'll, I'll do this with each of the 39 as we go through our Old Testament study here. 
But I want to show you that Genesis can really be divided down into four basic structures or divisions. First one, Genesis 1 through 2, can be labeled as creation. Now, as a side note, some people have seen Genesis 1 and then they go into Genesis 2. And I've actually, I had a friend of mine who claimed that that was a secondary creation account, a separate creation account, but that's not the case. As you look at the, the context of both of those chapters, you see that chapter 2 is zooming in on the particular aspect of creation, which is man and woman. And so 1 and 2 is the account of creation. Chapters 3 through 5 is the fall. And if you're listening carefully, you might think, well, we always kind of think of chapter 3 as the fall. So you can maybe even put the fall and its immediate aftermath because you start to see that people start to die. There's murder in chapter 4. Chapter 5 is and he died, and he died, and he died. It's the effect of the fall. So chapters 3 through 5 is the fall. 6 through 11 is the flood and its immediate aftermath. And then we see that chapters 12 through 50 is what we call the family. So to me, it's always helpful when I'm studying my Bible is to get an understanding of the, the, the simple outline of the book that I'm looking at. So Genesis, creation, fall, flood, family. Once you kind of get that structure in your thinking, then when you start to read through it, it, it makes a lot more sense. and You can kind of find your, your bearings on where you're at. So now, which of these sections are the largest, obviously? The family. Chapters 12 through 50 is focusing on one family on the earth. So God creates the heavens and the earth, then he zooms into one planet. And then in the planet, he zooms into one family. If you guys ever scrolled into like Google Earth, right? You just keep going right into a very specific point. This is what God is doing from the universe down to the family. And who did God choose as the beginning of that family in Genesis 12? Abraham. Yep, or Abram at that time. You're right. So he chose Abram. So the bulk of Genesis is Abram and his descendants. So why? Why does he focus so much on this particular family? We'll come back to that in just a minute. But let's look at a couple of, of key passages. As I was kind of thinking through all of these 50 chapters, it was really difficult to choose just two foundational sections in Genesis to kind of put before you. But if you were to pick two that would have that would illustrate Genesis and its impact on the rest of the Bible, it would have to be chapters 9 and chapters 12. So in these two chapters, God makes two covenants with mankind, and they're still having their impact on our life even today. So does anybody want to take a stab at how you would define what a covenant is? What is a covenant? Yes. Yeah. So it's an, they're entering into a promise with one another, right? And it's a way to show that there's a promise that's been made. So you can think of it as a contract, even though that, that term's not quite as strong as it needs to be, because covenant is, is much more forceful than a contract. But it, it gives you a, a good visual. If, uh, like, how many of you own a phone? So you probably weren't involved in signing the contract for your phone. If, if maybe you bought it outright, so maybe you don't have a contract. But, but if you're to go and, and buy a phone, they make, why do they make you sign a contract when you go and buy a phone? What's the purpose of that? They can get their money back, right? They want to make sure that they're profitable when they sell their phone. Okay. Why? Now let's forget the phone because that's, maybe that's not a good example. You all look at me like I've never heard of what a phone is. Or maybe it's just because it's too early in the morning. What's the purpose of a contract in general? Like why do people sign contracts? Yeah. Yeah, so you're, you're stating the terms that are going to be agreed upon. And if one party breaks that term, what happens to the contract? 
Yeah, so you don't have to upkeep your terms or there's legal action that can be taken, right, to force the other side. So in the Bible, there are two types of covenants. One is conditional and the other is unconditional. Or if you want the theological term, you have unilateral and bilateral. So unilateral, just like if it's a unicycle, how many wheels are on a unicycle? There's one, right? A unilateral covenant means that there is one party that is responsible to uphold the covenant. That's the unconditional covenant. Bilateral means two, means that both parties need to keep their end of the agreement in order for the covenant to be binding. Now, for example... Well, let, let, me, uh, let me just kind of stay in order here. Turn to Genesis chapter 9, and let's look at the first covenant. So if you were to look at your outline, we're in chapter 9. So what section of Genesis, division-wise, are we in? We're in the flood, Right? So chapter 6, God, and we answered that on, on Thursday. God was sorry that he made man, and he says, I'm going to blot man out from the face of the earth. It literally means to take a dish with a rag and to completely wipe off everything on the planet, except Noah found favor in God's sight. So Noah and his family get to enter onto the ark, and they are spared from God's judgment. They go through the flood, they step out onto the dry land. They're starting to establish life again. And this is where we pick up the covenant that God makes with, I didn't grab a pen, with Noah. It's called the Noahic covenant. If you want to know how to spell that, just spell Noah and put I-C at the end. Noahic covenant. But this is what he says. Look at verse 8 in chapter 9. It says, Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. So pause there for a minute. The language that God is using here, would you say that this is a unilateral or a bilateral covenant? It's unilateral. God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to uphold this agreement. Look at verse 10. So he's making it with his descendants, verse 10. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the cattle and the beasts of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you. And all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh." So, God enters into this unconditional covenant with Noah and his descendants, that includes us. What is he promising in the covenant? Yes, yeah, so there will never again be a worldwide flood. And then he gives a sign. What is the sign, like the reminder that this covenant is in place? The rainbow. Isn't that interesting? He says, I set my bow in the clouds. Some of the, the language that's used here seems to indicate that the imagery is a warrior who's taking his archery bow and setting it down. I am no longer in warfare against the world in this sense. I'm putting my bow in the cloud. I am, I am not going to destroy the world with water again. And that's why God has imagery in the rainbow. That's why when you go to Answers in Genesis, if you go to their 
their displays at the ark that they're showing you the, the this is what the rainbow really means. In fact, I remember when I was a senior in high school at my uh, job, there was a bunch of us that were high school age working together and it, there was a rainbow outside because it had been raining and it was beautiful. It was right over our shop and it was centered over where we were working. It was gorgeous. And uh, I asked one of the workers, I said, do you know what the rainbow means in the Bible? And they didn't know. So I got to share with them the, the promise that God had made in Genesis chapter 9. So the reason that God made this covenant is because when, when Noah steps out onto the land and they begin to multiply, they begin to repopulate the earth, did mankind get any better? No. So the condition of man is still corrupt, is still sinful, and God is saying, I want you to know, even though you are still worthy of being flooded off this planet, that I'm going to withhold that. I will not do that again. So then the question then becomes, why did God make that promise? Why did he promise not to flood the entire world again? What's his plan? That's true. We'll get to that in a minute. But the, the book of Second um, Peter tells us that God will destroy the world again. It's not going to be with water. It's, it's going to be with fire. That's at the end of time. But up until that point, what's his plan in between the Noahic covenant and the destruction of fire? What is he wanting to accomplish during that time? Redemption. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we'll see this in a couple of minutes, where God made a promise that one would come to crush the head of the serpent. So it's not that Noah was great. It's not that he was more godly. It's not that he deserved it. But God had made a promise in Genesis 3 that he would bring a redeemer. And so he tells Noah, I'm going to withhold my universal judgment until the Messiah comes so that people can be redeemed from their sin. And then when my Messiah returns, judgment's going to happen again. It won't be with water. It will be with fire. So this is the foundation. Genesis chapter 9 is the Noahic covenant, which allows everything else from the Bible to telescope out of chapter 9. Now with that in mind, turn to Genesis chapter 12. This is the, the second covenant that we see. This one you'll be very familiar with if you've been in and around Taylor Creek for any time. Pastor Jason has done a great job laying the foundation for our understanding of the, the content of this covenant and its importance. This is the Abrahamic covenant, and God makes three promises to Abraham. Let's read it here. Chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the Abrahamic covenant has three components to it. You guys remember what they are? Very good. Land, seed, generations to come, and I will bless you. And through this family, which I'm choosing, remember we're now in chapter 12, so now we're focusing on the family. That will be God's fulfillment of that covenant. And he says, through this family, how many people will be blessed? Look at the end of verse 3. You know, all the families, all the nations. So there's going to come from this family the one that was promised in Genesis 3.15 that would crush the head of the serpent that can bless all of the families of the earth. So the language that God uses here in chapter 12, is this a unilateral covenant or a bilateral covenant? Conditional or unconditional? 
Say it again. Bilateral. So what did Abraham have to do in, if, if it was bilateral, it means that he has to do something, right? Is there anything that Abraham is required to do here in the language of the covenant? Mm-hmm. Well, he has to obey, yes. And that's a good point. Even in the unilateral covenants, even in unconditional covenants, obedience is required. But even when obedience doesn't happen, the covenant doesn't break down, right? So that's an important um, distinction. So thank you for bringing that up. So Abraham did have to obey, but the language that God uses here, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. It's unilateral. The reason that's important is because some people look at the nation of Israel and they say, well, look how disobedient the nation was, especially when Christ comes to present himself as the Messiah, the nation of Israel as a a whole rejected him. And so they broke the covenant, they're covenant breakers. And so God now has no requirement to uphold his promise that he made to Abraham. The problem is, is that God promised that he was the one that was going to do the covenant because he knew that there would be disobedience. If you're taking notes, you can jot down Genesis chapter 15 where you get more information on the covenant. If you guys remember that imagery, if you're familiar with that passage, God tells Abraham to sacrifice animals, to cut them in two, and to make this pathway. That was a very common picture of, of two individuals walking through a pathway to enter into a covenant with one another. However, there was only one person that walked through the pathway to make the covenant. Abraham was put under a deep sleep, and it says a torch as if a fire was walking through the path. God himself was the only one that walked through the path. In other words, he says, this covenant is mine to uphold, even though you will be disobedient. That's good news, by the way, because out of the Abrahamic covenant, we get the new covenant. Remember when Jesus talked in the upper room right before he went to the cross? This is a new covenant in my blood. He goes to the cross to pay for our sins. Now think about your salvation in Christ. If it was conditional, if you had to uphold your salvation, what would happen? In other words, if God says, if you disobey me, you're going to lose your salvation. None of us would make it. But God says, even though I know you're going to fail me, I'm going to uphold my end of the promise. And this is what we see also in the Abrahamic covenant. Jeremiah 31 talks about the new covenant. Jesus enacts it in the upper room. And then as he goes to the cross to to pay for the sins of his people. And so these two covenants, the Noahic covenant holds God's wrath back so that the Messiah can come. The Abrahamic covenant is the choice of a nation that through their descendants, the Messiah will be born. That's the Lord Jesus. And then he will put in place the new covenant, which is everlasting life, which once you are in Christ, you are secure. I mean, as a believer, we fail constantly. But God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's the security of salvation in Christ. So those two, chapters 9 and chapter 12, if I had to pick two of them, they have these branches that go out through all of the rest of of the Bible because everything else is building on these two promises that God made in the beginning of the book of Genesis. So I want to give you now, if you look on your, your outline, I want to give you a couple of key questions to think about from this book. We won't cover these exhaustively, but I just want to challenge your mind to think and and to be expanded to consider the significance of of this particular book. Question number one, it says, what implication does the Genesis creation account have on our worldview of origins? So if if you were to kind of put on the table all of the different theories that people have about the origins of mankind. What are the theories that are currently on the table? 
evolution. Sorry, I pointed at both of you at the same time. Intelligent design means that there has to be some sort of uh, creative force behind how we came to be. Maybe they don't know what it is, but it's a general term. Mm -hmm. Some religions think the earth has been around forever. Okay, so it's always existed. It's eternal, okay. Yes? Yeah, the Big Bang Theory, that there was this huge explosion and everything came out of this explosion. Mm -hmm. Yes? Deism. Deism, what's that? Yes. So he initiated the process, but he's not personally involved. He stepped back and he's a distant deity. Mm -hmm. Theistic evolution is kind of a mixing of people that want to have their, their foot in the scientific, supposed scientific world and in the biblical world where God uses evolution to move forward the advancement of life on earth. So it's really just those three kind of repackaged, right? Evolution or God has created. And so now when you, when you come to the Bible, if you were to kind of set aside all of the controversy, all of the baggage, all of the preconceived notions of how people read Genesis 1 and 2, if you were to just read the text, what origin story do you come out with in Genesis 1 and 2? But more specifically, what? Yeah, that God created, and He created in how many days? Six days and rested on the seventh. I mean, it's as, it's as simple as that. In fact, somebody said, if God wanted to communicate that he created in six literal days, there's no other way for him to do it. And so we don't want to dismiss what the text actually tells us. So there are great implications. I mean, depending on how you view the creation account in Genesis 1 through 2 is going to change your worldview quite a bit. Question number two, how do people have a diversity of languages across the planet? The reason I ask this question is because the evolutionist does not have a satisfactory answer for this. How do we come up with multiple languages? How did languages begin at all? The evolutionary theory cannot satisfactorily answer that. But the Bible does tell us in Genesis chapter 11, what does it say at the Tower of Babel? What did God do to diversify human language? Yeah, in verse 7, it says God confused their language. So he gave different languages as a supernatural act. And why did he do that, by the way? The, chapter 11 tells us there's a reason that he did that. Mm -hmm. So God had commanded them to populate the earth, to spread out and go into the earth and to populate the earth. And what did the people do? They did just the opposite. They huddled together and they began to build. And it specifically says that their motive for building, do you remember in chapter 11? What was their motive? To stay together and build a tower to make a name for ourselves. So they wanted to build for their own glory. And so God came to the workers and confuse their languages, and then they were spread out so that they would obey his creation command. Question number three, how were people saved in the Old Testament before the coming of Jesus? How did people come to salvation in the Old Testament? Who said that? Faith? How do you know? You're correct. It was Abraham, right? Yes. No, that's very good. So Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, God takes him outside. He shows him the, he says, look toward the heavens, count the stars. If you're able to count them, and he says, so shall your descendants be. Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. God credited to him righteousness. 
And that's exactly the message of the book of Romans. So Abraham did not know the name of Christ. He didn't know the full understanding of God's plan of salvation, but it's always been by faith. God has spoken something and we believe what God has said. So it has always been the case. In fact, there's a amazing language in the book of Hebrews that talks about the, the saints in the Old Testament. It's paraphrase from memory, but it says that God overlooked their transgression for a time until the coming of Christ. So salvation is always through the cross. It's always because of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it wasn't until Jesus came and died on the cross that it paid the penalty for the sins of the Old Testament saints. And so God was patient until that time, and then all their sins were wiped out when Christ died on the cross. It's amazing, but it's always been by faith. So in these last couple portions of your outline, I want to show you how the book of Genesis speaks of Jesus specifically. If you remember last Sunday, we looked at Luke chapter 24, when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, he had the conversation with those two disciples, and it says, starting with Moses and with all the prophets, he showed them all the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So where in the book of Genesis does Jesus appear? Let me show you just a couple of them. Go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We made reference to this earlier, but let's read the text. This is kind of the, the challenge. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we, we said that the Old Testament has what is called, well, the entirety of the Bible, actually, has what's called progressive revelation. God gives a little bit of information at the beginning, but it's not the full picture. And then he begins to build, and he begins to add to it, and he begins to clarify the picture as he goes along. So I want you guys to kind of read Genesis 3.15 without all of your knowledge of what's coming forward, which is kind of hard for us to do. But I want you to listen to what we learn about the plan of salvation here in Genesis 3.15. This is God speaking <clears throat> to the serpent. He says, and I will put enmity or strife or conflict between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So what do we learn about redemption just here limited to the language of Genesis 3.15? Yes. Yeah. So the serpent is going to uh, injure somebody. He's going to crush or bruise the heel, so we know there's going to be an injury to one that's coming. Right? What else do we learn about this one who is coming? What's that? Okay. What pronoun is used? He. So we learn it's a he, right? So one is going to come. It's a he. He's going to be injured. And then what is he going to do to the serpent? He's going to crush the head of the serpent. Now, what else do we learn about the serpent? Yep, he'll strike his heel, correct? Good. So the woman has offspring, right? What about the serpent? Does the serpent have offspring? Yeah, that's interesting. So when you're, when you're reading through these things, the natural question, if, if this is all that you had, if, you're, if you've never read the Bible before, you read verse 15, you're like, okay, there's a man coming who's going to put strife between the offspring of the serpent. We don't even know who the serpent is fully yet. Offspring of the woman, their their uh, descendants. There's going to be strife between them, and this man is going to come from the woman, who is going to crush the serpent. That's all we know at this point, right? But with that in mind, I want you guys to turn to Romans chapter 16. 
Paul wants us to make a very clear connection here back to Genesis. Romans chapter 16, look at verse 20. It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So Paul says, remember the promise in Genesis 3.15? The one who does the crushing? According to this verse is who? He's God. And he's the God of peace. And he will crush him underneath the believer's feet. Because we're, as you look at the rest of the New Testament, we are united with Christ. It's an amazing imagery. Go. Now, turn back to Genesis chapter 22. This would take a Sunday of its own to unfold. So I just want to point out a couple of, of pieces of this account that you are probably familiar with, Abraham and Isaac. God called Abraham to sacrifice his son. We can't read through this entire thing, but if you're looking through verses 1 through 14, you start to pull out a number of details that, for those of you who have the context of the New Testament, should start to resonate. Notice first in verse 2. He said, take now your son, your what? Only son. Is that a, a phrase that's familiar to us? Look again in verse 12. He says, I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son. So he repeats it twice in this account. That wording... For us in the New Testament, what does that draw our minds to? Yeah, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. So Genesis 22 does not specifically mention Christ. And it's not specifically Jesus in the account, but it's giving this imagery, it's giving us these connecting points for our minds to understand the fullness of the story. You'll notice also that uh, when, when Abraham and, and Isaac are getting ready to, to go to the mountain, who's carrying the wood on his back? It's Isaac. So we store that away. Look what it says in verse 3. It says, Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him. And Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. What happened on the mountain that Abraham was going to? Was there death? Trick question. Yes, there was death. Who died on the mountain or what died on the mountain? A ram. Okay. So they go up to the mountain. Abraham thinks he's going to sacrifice his son. There's a substitute. When Isaac is looking at all the pieces of their equipment and he starts to realize they don't have a sacrificial animal, he says, where is the sacrifice? Abraham replies and says to his son, God will supply the lamb. But it wasn't a lamb that was caught in the thicket. It was a ram. So now we're storing these imageries in our mind of, of the lamb, of the sacrifice, of the third day when in a picture, Isaac received his life back. Correct? And all of this is picturing... God's only son, he carried the cross, it was on the third day. And people, when they, when they read Genesis chapter 22, critics will have a really hard time with this passage. 
oh, human sacrifice, and how could God do that, and why would God call Abraham to do that? The problem is, did Isaac die? No, he was spared. But when God sent his only son, he was not spared. The innocent one, the creator of the universe, we should be way more offended at the fact that Jesus was punished for sins that he didn't commit than being offended by Genesis chapter 22. That should amaze us. But I want to show you one final one. Turn to Genesis chapter 28. How stable was the family? As you read Genesis 12 through 50, and you learn about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and all the dynamics of the family, how, how healthy was their family? Did they have problems? They had a lot of problems. Deception, distrust, lying to one another, using one another to get out of trouble. So Jacob goes to his father Isaac and pretends to be his brother because his father's eyesight is bad and he deceives him. Why did he deceive his father? What did he want to get? The blessing? He wanted the birthright. So when when Esau finds out that that's what Jacob had done, how did he respond? I'm going to kill him. So Jacob runs. So now he's running away from his brother to spare his own life. This is where we pick up the story here. Look at verse 10. It says, Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its, with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. The Lord reaffirming the Abrahamic covenant at this particular time shows you that it's unconditional. Jacob is in a state of deception, of betrayal. He's fleeing for his life. God appears to him in the wilderness and he says, I'm still going to give you the land like I promised. But he has this dream. And it's an odd dream. Remember, if you're only reading through Genesis for the first time, have no context of what comes further, Jacob dreams about a ladder that connects heaven to earth and the angels are going up and down the ladder. That's an odd dream to have. But when he wakes up, he says, this is the presence of God. Like God is in this place. He understood that heaven and earth were connecting at that point. Now, with that imagery in mind, turn to John chapter 1. The beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, he begins to call his disciples to follow him. Look at verse 45. It says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit, which by the way, that can be translated as a reference to Jacob. So he's already making a connection to Genesis. Verse 48. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The picture of the ladder in Genesis 28 is to show us that one would come to connect heaven and earth. Jesus said this a number of different ways. John chapter 10, he says, I am the door of the sheep. You have to go through me to have life. He said it a different way in John 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So the first question is, have you entered through Christ for eternal life? Have you come to salvation? The Lord Jesus is the glorious fulfillment of everything that we start to see laid before us in the book of Genesis, and it all points to him. And so the theme of the book, in the beginning, God lays this foundation for the rest of the truth of the Bible. So I want to encourage you, just continue to read the scriptures. Be amazed with the connections that are made throughout the word. But remember, the goal is to see the beauties of Christ when you read your Bible. The goal is to learn more about the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ so that in response, your heart desires to worship and to honor his name because he deserves worship. Let's pray as we close. Lord, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the, the perfect record of what you've wanted us to know not only about creation and life and how you want us to live, but more importantly, it points us to the beauty of your Son. And so, Father, as we continue to learn more about the Lord Jesus, I pray that we would love him, be drawn to him, to praise his name, and to thank you, Father, for sending him so that we could have life in his name. He is the latter. He is the door. He is the way to life. He is the only way. And Father, you sent your only son so that believing in him, we could be credited with his righteousness. And so thank you for the gift that we can't fathom and that we didn't deserve. But Father, we are grateful. And it's in his name we pray.